Okay, friends, we are having our third ever uh, Exiles in Babylon conference, April 18th through the 20th in Boise, Idaho. You can attend virtually or attend live. Uh, space is filling up, so if you do want to attend live, I would uh, highly recommend registering sooner than later at theologyintheraw.com. That's theologyintheraw.com. We are going to tackle a bunch of really important and tough topics. We're going to talk about deconstruction, reconstruction, and the gospel. Why are people deconstructing from their former evangelical faith? We have Abigail. Gail Favali, Amin Hudson, Tim Whitaker from the New Evangelicals, and Evan Wickham, who are going to be uh, dialoguing about that topic. We also are going to ta- uh, cover the extremely important and very um, sensitive topic of women, power, and abuse in the church. We have Julie Slattery, uh, Sandy Richter, Tiffany Bloom, Lori Krieg addressing that super important topic. Uh, we're also going to tackle LGBTQ people and the church with Greg Coles, Brenna Blaine, Art Perea, and Kat LaPrairie. And we're also, of course, going to tackle politics, three Christian views of politics, where we're going to have a left-leaning Christian, a right-leaning Christian, and a non-leaning and a Baptist-ish Christian uh, who are going to, we're going to put them in dialogue together and, and, and hash some things out. So we have Brian Zahn representing that middle or non-position or whatever, uh, Chris Butler, left-leaning Christian, Joy Mosley, right right-leaning Christian. We're also going to have Max Licato there. We're going to have a joint podcast with Amin Hudson from the Southside Rabbi podcast, along with YouTube sensation um, Ruslan, and of course, we're going to have street hymns there throughout the conference, making everybody uncomfortable. So, um, oh, oh yeah. And of course, a worship with uh, Evan Wickham and Tanika Wyatt. I cannot wait. This is going to be a barn burner, folks. I am working extremely hard to get canceled this year. So this might be the last. It won't be. Well, who knows? We'll see. Um, yeah, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna be engaging. It's gonna be, I, I think, helpful and profitable and uncomfortable and encouraging and challenging and convicting and, and all all those fun things. So go to theologyinraw.com, register sooner than later. That's theologyinthera.com. I will see you in April. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My guest today is Dr. Kevin Grasso, who has a PhD from uh, Hebrew University and is really a profound expert in the biblical languages, as you will hear. He is a a linguist and a biblical scholar. And I came across uh, Kevin's work fairly recently as he was interacting with some blogs I was writing on the Greek word kephale. And he helped me understand from a linguist point of view, uh, some of the categories that I was working with and getting wrong. (laughs) And he so graciously reached out and offered some help. And we've had a, a, a lengthy kind of back and forth learning relationship where I'm learning from him as a linguist um, about um, a lot of things related to the New Testament. Anyway, Kevin is also the founder and creator of Biblingo. It's a um, a, a platform, a, a program that uses proven methods of learning languages that are often not applied to learning biblical languages, and he applies them to learning biblical languages. So I would highly recommend this resource. I've advertised it on the show before. I wanted to have him come on the show to talk primarily about linguistics, but also about Biblingo and also the Greek word kephale. So the first half of this conversation is going to be a bit nerdy. Um, we're going to get into some scholarly stuff about the biblical languages. And um, he does talk briefly about Biblingo, but then we spend the last half of the, this podcast conversation talking about Ephesians 5, the Greek word kephale. What does it mean that a husband is the head of his wife? And what does mutual submission mean in in Ephesians 5.22? How does that relate to the rest of the passage as a whole? So um, if if some of you are um, not really into linguistics or 
the biblical languages at the beginning. Hopefully you will be by the end of that first half of the conversation. But if you are listening to this podcast because you really want to get to the, the nitty gritty of Ephesians 5 and women and, uh, and, and the, uh, the relationship between husband and wife and so on and so forth, then um, that does come in the latter half of this episode. So please welcome to the show for the first time, the one and only Dr. Kevin Grasser. Kevin, thanks so much for being on Theology Raw for the first time. Thanks a lot. It's, it's uh, quite an honor and a pleasure. Uh, so we connected recently over questions about linguistics. Yeah, we have an interesting history that I, some of it I, I you have reminded me of. Uh, but let's, um, yeah, let's go back. And, and how, how did you get into academics and uh, specifically becoming passionate about the field of linguistics? And yeah, just give us a little bit of background on who you are and what you do. Yeah, actually, it, it is funny. I... Um, so I went and toured Eternity Bible College when you were there and sat in on one of your classes. And at the time, and still really to this day, I was wrestling with this question of like, what does it really mean to follow Jesus? And, um, you know, a big part of that has always been like justification by faith and like, what does, how does that interface with, you know, some of the things that Jesus says about just like, take up your cross and follow me, you know, it's like, and, and Mm. there are really in a lot of ways these kind of competing narratives, it feels like in the way some people are reading Paul and some people are reading Jesus. And so I've always wrestled with this sort of like very foundational question. Um, And early on, I just realized that a lot of the debates that were taking place were really at the end of the day about like what these Greek and Hebrew words meant. Mm. And for me, I felt like, how, how can I engage like thoughtfully with these people who are debating what this Greek word means in this particular context without knowing Greek and Hebrew. Um, Mm. And so that kind of led me down this path of, you know, eventually linguistics. And, you know, I I then took a step back and said, I really would want a theory of meaning to apply to Mm. Greek and Hebrew before, you know, getting into the languages. So that led me eventually to linguistics, to diving into Greek and Hebrew as, you know, as much as I could really to answer these kind of like big picture questions of, um, yeah, like how, how do we live out the Christian life? I mean, it's a, you know, it's a very like foundational thing. Um, but I, but I think it's really in answering that question well, that yeah, the, the church would be edified. Um, and I think it's when we get away from those basic questions, uh, we, yeah, just tend to, um, argue about things that don't matter quite as much. (laughs) So that would be my, did you always, were you always, did you feel like you had a good knack for learning the biblical languages? Was that a struggle for you or was it something that just you just enjoyed and, and so it came more natural to you? Yeah. So I I did my PhD in in Israel. When I got there, I um I had, had read through about like half of the Old Testament in Hebrew. And I was like at the time, I was um, you know, like doing I would I would usually bring my Greek and Hebrew Bible to church with me. And that's what I would read. That so people would look at me and they say, "Oh, man, like you're like pretty good at the languages." And like in a seminary context, I would like stand out as someone who is, you know, like a little bit better. But once I got to Israel, it was like, "Oh, I don't know anything <laughs> about these languages." So, so yeah, I I started there, um, actually taking a, a class with the Biblical Language Center with Randall Booth, like a, an immersive oh, biblical yeah. Hebrew class. And then he I does did, like a living. Um, he teaches biblical Hebrew as like a living language, right? Right. Well, you almost right. learn so, how to speak biblical Hebrew, which is, is that correct? Right. Yep. 
So I did that for a month and then I went to the police Institute, um, with, hmm. and they do the same thing, but they do it for basically two years for Greek and Hebrew for biblical Greek and biblical Hebrew. So I was in this immersive context where we would spend the entire class, you know, in biblical Hebrew, talking in biblical Hebrew, reading the text in biblical Hebrew, right? It was just all, um, and so you just realize very quickly, yeah, there's just a level, a level of fluency in the language that uh i had not attained <laughs> i hadn't even seen yeah. right yeah. um and so that really was the foundation um you know of, of where i am today of like how to read the text mm -hmm. like a like a real text you know like a real language yeah did you spend more time in greek or hebrew or, or both i think Hebrew. so right? i or... yeah i really so definitely modern hebrew like i mean i've spent the most time in modern hebrew um because i okay. you know had to take take uh, six levels at Hebrew University and, you know, basically passed the Pator, which is like exemption from any more study. And my classes were in Hebrew and all that stuff. Um, and so, yeah, that I, I spent the most time there. Um, and then at the Polish Institute, I probably did more Greek actually than, than Hebrew. Okay. Um, so I, I like to say that I, I don't discriminate, I try to just do, yeah. do both as much as possible. Like, can you, so just to give me perspective and people that have studied Greek would, this might make more sense, but like, could you pick up any book of the New Testament and e even harder books like, say, Hebrews or even maybe parts of Acts, like, and just read it pretty quickly without stumbling on a word? I mean, yeah, for sure. It depends. So, what I tell people is really like, there's a difference between um, fluency and like um, breadth of knowledge. So like, for example, if I, if I'm like in, in Israel and, and, uh, like I can certainly listen to a lecture on, you know, second temple Judaism or in linguistics, like that's easy. But if you ask me to go talk to a, you know, some random person, um, about politics, um, I didn't take any classes on politics. So I don't, I, I, you would be giving me so many new words that I, I probably wouldn't be able to understand you. Um, and so what learning that way does for you is it it helps your fluency a lot right so there are definitely like like i can just read you know certainly easier to middle medium text as if i'm reading english right so that's easy um are there but are there going to be words in hebrews that i like don't remember for sure right yeah. um but but you know the, but i because i can you know because i just have a broader vocabulary now I can read through it pretty quickly and say, okay, here's that one word I'm going to plug right. in. So like, you know, I read through, I was reading through the Septuagint last year um, mm -hmm. and I kind of got off track, but I ended up reading like a thousand pages, right, of, of Greek. Um, and so that, like the way mm -hmm. you can do that is if you just get, you have to get fast enough, right, of reading to just get through right. the material. And that's where I think most people um, just never get to that point. I remember, uh, I think it was my first semester in my PhD program where there was a, a, a reading group that was reading through Philo. <laughs> I'd never read through Philo. I don't think in English, let alone Greek at that time. And, uh, I remember coming in, you know, I said, you know, I had several years of biblical Greek, whatever. And it read, you know, chunks of the new Testament, you know, I never would crack it open Philo and like, I'm looking at it like it's a different language. I'm like, this is, yeah. And then my, I remember our professor, uh, the guy, well, the professor was leading the group, Peter Williams, who's like fluent and, every language I've ever heard of, um, you know, he's like, uh, just so you know, this is like real Greek, you know, like, <laughs> so it was at that moment when I stopped saying, I know people say, do you know Greek? And I used to say, oh yeah, I know Greek. And then I'm like, no, 
Like, have, yeah, do you know yeah. Greek? I'd say, nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no, no caveats, no foot, you know, like, oh, wait, well, did you take several years of Greek? Oh, yeah, yeah. I took several years of Koine Greek and I could read the New Testament sort of, you know, possibly, you know, partly because I kind of know Koine Greek and partly because I kind of know the New Testament a lot better. But do I know right. Greek? No, don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is, was so it hard. Is a, it was so incredibly hard. Yeah, I, I took a class on Philo at Hebrew U. Um, and it is like, it, it is you know, it's hard for, for everyone. Um, yeah. but, but, but I do think that like, you know, so it, it was interesting, like in that class, there were two people from who had studied Greek at the police Institute, me and this other guy. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like, if like, because Philo's vocabulary is so broad, like you can't, yeah. um, you know, unless you've just been in it for forever, like there's going to be words you don't know, but like once we could get those words, like then we could read through it and understand okay. it right quickly right and i think that's the sort of like at, at some point you're just plugging in new words it's kind of like in english right like i'm not trying to get fluent in english but i can't because i already am but i can't read like a medical textbook and understand right. everything right i need what i need is the the vocabulary right but then because i'm fluent in the syntax and how how english works the grammar I can just read through it once I have that vocabulary, right? And so that's that's what you know doing it this way yeah. will, will get you. I had a practice, you know, and we we could move on from languages for most of my audience that might not know or care. But um, I would uh, the best way I I found with vocab was I'd take a stack of like you know maybe fifty Greek word cards or whatever, and I'd I'd ride the elliptical machine because it's you're not you know it's you can kind of stay parallel, and I'd flip the cards and. Anytime I really knew a word right away, I would take it out of the stack so that I end up focusing on the words that I didn't know really well. So 50 cards, I'd read through it. I'd be down to like 35 cards, read through it, you know, 25, read through it. And there would be still like four or five words that I would just flip over and over because I'd forget within seconds, I'd forget what they were, you know? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I'd do that. But I honestly, like, Rather than flipping cards, I think the best thing is just reading over and over and over, just spending time just in in the text reading it rather than focusing so much on the grammar and memorizing words and everything. But anyway, I was not naturally good at learn, learning the languages, but it was I was motivated because, yeah, the benefit, man, all of a sudden, once you start getting a feel for it, you're like, oh, there's nuances here that you just, it's hard to translate. And, um, and it's just like, yeah, you just, I, I will know a passage in English inside and out. But the second I really read through it in Greek, I'm, I'm going to be reading through it a lot slower, you know, and I just start mm -hmm. picking stuff up just from the text itself because I'm, I'm forced to go slower and really think through it. And, uh, yeah, for sure. Can you tell us while we're on this, uh, tell us how, what is Biblingo? How, or let's start, how did you start it? Why did you start it? And what is it? Because this is something we've advertised in the podcast. It's, it's really is a, a, a as far as I could see, a very unique and innovative and really effective way of learning the biblical languages. So we'd love to hear your heart behind it. Yeah, yeah. So um, honestly, it was originally, I, I, I did my master's in linguistics at uh, Wycliffe School in Dallas, and I was going to you know, be involved in the Bible translation world. So this was before Israel. And uh, while I was there, I kind of was kind of was expecting like, these people to be like the best at Greek and Hebrew in the world. Um, and they, they weren't. <laughs> um, so I, I was kind of like puzzled by this. I was like, why, why are we like, why don't we have some sort of resource 
to um, teach people Greek and Hebrew, like the way that these people are saying languages should be taught. And that was like, like the fundamental disconnect where they were saying, hey, when you go, you know, to Papua New Guinea or whatever, and you are trying to learn a language, this is how you should learn a language, right? Um, and so they were teaching these principles based on second language acquisition, this field of linguistics that they were then not applying at all in the Greek and Hebrew classes. Um, and at the same time, I, I was involved for a little bit in a project in Mexico, helping with this translation into uh, this Aztec language called Nahuatl. And basically the way they do translation, I don't know if you know this already, but basically they translate from a translation. So they're translating from Spanish and they translate from there into Nahuatl. And no one on the team knows Hebrew. So they're doing Old Testament, no one knows Hebrew. So they do Spanish Nahuatl, and then they do Nahuatl to English. And then I came in and checked that translation against the Hebrew, right? <laughs> so you can see, yeah. right? They're, you know, you're looking at, I'm looking at a translation of a translation of a translation, trying to figure out if that matches the Hebrew, right? So I was thinking, well, why, like if we have Rosetta Stone or Duolingo where everyone can learn English if they want to, why not create a resource where these translators can learn Greek and Hebrew, right? So that I don't need to come fly from North America to Mexico to check your translation of a translation of a translation. Mm -hmm. So that was the original idea. Um, create a resource where um, Bible translators and really anyone can just learn the language um, for themselves. So when I went to Israel, I realized like that's really the best place to do it. So I, I was in this sort of immersive environment at the Polis Institute, um, you know, taking Koine Greek classes in Koine Greek. And so what you would do is, is you would, you know, um, the teacher would stand up and, you know, they would like pick up an object and say, Tuto estin hudor, you know, and they, you would see the, the object in the world and you would hear the, the, the Greek, right? And, and so what you would do is you would match, you know, the, the physical world to, hmm. to the, the Greek, you know, sentence. And that's basically how kids would have learned it, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's what they would have done. And so we basically took that same sort of idea and said, okay, how can we recreate this with technology that we have um, so that hmm. anyone can do it? So we basically filmed like 2,500 of these videos. We wrote all these Greek and Hebrew sentences filmed 2,500 of these videos, paired them up. And so now what you can do is you can have this same sort of experience, right? Where we have people dressed up like first century characters um, holding a first century cup and they say, Tuto estin hudor, right? And, and you can learn Greek as close as you can to what, you know, they kids would have learned in first century Nazareth or whatever. So that, that was the basic idea. And obviously, you know, we're much broader than just just uh, the Bible translation world, but we're trying to create a resource where anyone can learn the languages um, and and benefit from it. So, you know, I do it with my three-year-old, five-year-old, and 10-year-old. Right? Really? So I, I just do it the same way. Yeah. Because it's like- You're teaching, they them, don't need to you're teaching the... them Greek? Your kids are going to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. biblical Greek? <laughs> they <crazy>. better be. <laughs> I, I, we're actually doing Hebrew. So, hmm. but, but, but for them, right, I, I, it's very, very simple. And I don't, I don't care at all about the grammar. Like I'm, they, they don't know what a participle is right. and they don't need to know, right? So, but what they can hmm. know, right, is they can look at a house and say, bite, right? And they can start to, um, you know, connect the world with the language. And that's, and that's what we really want. And that's what I think most people want, honestly. Like if you talk to most people in seminary, they want to be able to read the Bible in the original language. Yeah. They, they don't they don't really care so much about the grammar. They want to be able to read, 
right? And that's a different skill. And so that's kind of what we're trying to get at. So wait, are you saying that learning the, like if you're studying biblical Greek, if someone wants to learn Koine Greek, that they shouldn't like go through a grammar book or why is, is grammar not important? Or can you expand on that a little bit? Well, obviously, you know that I'm, I'm a, a knee deep in grammar all the time, right? <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm, uh, let me ask you an English question. Do you know what the passive participle of break is? <laughs> Sorry, I just of put you break. on the spot. Uh, what passive participle was broken? No, would it be, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That, so that, that broken? would be a verbal, yeah, broken. Right, exactly. Broken. So most okay. people don't know the answer to that question. So, but was broken, right, is, is like a verbal participle. It was broken. Okay. Um, then, and so we put the passive participle into that verbal construction. But right, so the vase, you know, is broken or the, or the, the broken vase, right? Mm-hmm. Here's the point. Do you need to know that to, to use the word broken? Right. No. Yeah. <laughs> right? Who cares? Yeah. I mean, if, if, if all you want to do is know how to use the word broken, who cares yeah. if you can call it a passive participle? Right yeah. now, now some people, if so for us, right, who are arguing about like what a particular word might mean, I want to know, you know, what, and, and if I'm reading the, the literature, right, if I'm reading commentaries, like I have to know the, the meta language, mm-hmm. but if I'm just wanting to read the Bible devotionally in Greek, like who cares if I know how to parse this thing, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's irrelevant. I mean, it's, 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 it's the kind of thing I actually don't want you to think about the parsing. I want you to think about the meaning, right? Because we're we're the whole point of reading the Bible in the original languages is so that we can get at a meaning that's different. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't come through, you know, telling me that this is an aorist. It comes through intuiting what an aorist is by exposure to a lot of texts, right? And by exposure to it the aorist in a meaningful way. But it's funny because uh, I I I was um kind of chumming you a little bit when I um about asking about the grammar because in the American system, it's very grammar heavy, right? You read, I mean, I read through, gosh, for Hebrew, I read through from my advanced Hebrew grammar class, Bruce Waltke's 700 page book on grammar. It's like reading through a dictionary. I mean, it's like slugging your way through it. And it's like, Oh, I just, I, I look back and I don't remember. I'm not saying I didn't learn. I just, it, it just felt, I just didn't feel like I was absorbing yeah, like I, I kind of going back. I wish I just spent time in the Hebrew text. In other classes, I took an exegesis class. I took a class on an exegesis of Psalm nine through eighteen, where we just slowly read through, you know, in Hebrew and really just like worked through the text. Definitely felt like I learned Hebrew a lot better that way. Actually, spending time in the text. I remember this is, there's a point to this. Uh, when I was in my PhD program at Aberdeen University, my my doctoral supervisor Simon Gatherkel, who's Brilliant. He's been reading Greek since he was like eight years old. He's like one of your kids, basically. Uh, brilliant. <laughs> Taught himself Coptic and wrote a commentary on the gospel. I mean, the guy's just master of languages. And I remember asking him, hey, so what's what's your favorite like Greek grammar? He's like, I don't know. I've never read one. I'm like, <laughs> and he turns around and does what you did. He's like, well, tell me, what's your favorite English grammar? I've never read her English. He's like, but you know English, right? I'm like, well, yeah, you just kind of know it. He's like, exactly. <laughs> like, so, um, it's funny that the I think that's pretty pretty typical. The British system is not that they don't wade through grammar books to the same extent. I think the American system. I think I, I mean, that might be too much of a generalization, but all that to say, I I I mean I I very much want to affirm kind of your method of learning and teaching the language. I think that is the way to actually learn learn the language. Even now, bro, it's embarrassing. Like as I'm reading through Greek, like I'll in my mind interpret something as like a passive and it, but if someone were to ask me to 
conjugate. I was like, I don't know. It's just, I see a theta there. It doesn't look like it belongs. And there's an eta too. And maybe it's a, you know, like, I know I just, I just feel, I just feel, kind of feel the word more. And I remember confessing this sin to my, another friend of mine who knew Greek. And he was like, well, you know, that's probably better than actually, like, that's a good place to be where you just like, I don't know. It's just, this is how you should read it. Like, I can't tell you why I can't, can't conjugate this. And I felt almost embarrassed. Like I lost all my, you know, morphology. And, and he's like, ah, yeah, I think you're in a good spot. But um, anyway, well, I, I, with Biblingo, how many people have gone through it? What kinds of people go through it? Um, I've been promoting it as like, you don't need to be a pastor or teacher. Just if you just, I think anybody, if they have the time and money, I'm, I don't want to shame people for not knowing languages, if they don't have the time or money or whatever, but like, I think anybody that wants a deeper understanding of the text, if they have the time, money, space in their life, whatever should, should do this. And for Biblingo, it's only like 15 minutes a day or something like that. What kinds of people have gone through it? Do you have any testimonies of, you know, wins people that have learned a language really well? And yeah, for sure. We have, we have a lot of testimonials. I mean, honestly, it's the, the gamut, right? I mean, we have scholars that use it. We have mm -hmm. um, kids that use it. We have lay people, we have mm -hmm. pastors, translators, you know, you name it. We have about a thousand active users now, and we're in I don't know something like a hundred countries or something like that. Um, Are you serious? So yeah, yeah. Oh. So we're basically like you know any. And this is what we're trying to say is like there are going to be some people that are going to struggle with the grammar, okay? And 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 it's and this is what this is how people feel. They they feel like man, I was I'm not like you know you said you I'm not not a language person, but like if you are put in the right environment, you will learn a language. You know, you just have to be put in that environment. And that's the issue is that the environment of talking about passive participles is not the environment where you learn mm. a language. Now, that being said, we do that. You know, we there, there's space for that in the in the in Biblingo itself. And I'm writing a grammar on Greek and Hebrew, right? I mean, I'm you know, so oh, I'm you like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm writing I'm writing introductory grammars on both How of them for <laughs> to be paired with Biblingo, right? So I'm not it's I'm not opposed to grammar. I'm just uh, my, my only point is that they're separate skills. Right. And so you can do, you can be good at one and not the other and vice versa. And most people, so like, you know, I, I, I read linguistic stuff all the time and, you know, like I have, I, I have opinions about like what the Russian, these Russian prefixes do. And like, I don't know Russian at all. Right. But I can see the data and I can see like, oh, okay, this is how they're distributed. And this is what, this seems to be what they're doing. Um, and this is, this is what linguists do. Right. But, but I can't speak Russian. Right. And I, I don't, I don't even know the letters. I mean, it's like, so but for most people, what they want to be able to do is read. They want to be able to read the text. And so for that, yeah. like, you really don't want to be focusing so much on what to call this thing, parsing, whatever. Right. Um, you just want to focus on the meaning. And, and so that, that's, that's what I would say is it really, it is actually for anyone. And, and what we always tell people, you know, the 15 minutes a day thing is like, look, like you don't, um, you just need to make consistent progress. I mean, that's, that's the whole key in language learning, just bite-sized chunks every single day um and you just you know you just keep going and and you don't put like a you know in, in seminary it's like okay i have this semester and i have to learn this many words in this semester but the beauty of, of this and and the beauty of really not having that is you you can just take your time and learn a little bit each day and get better and, and soon you will be reading the text and that's what people tell us you know it's like i took however many semesters of greek in seminary I wasn't reading, came to you guys, now I'm reading. And that that's what we wow. want. That we want people to be able to read. Could if someone has zero knowledge of Greek and they start and do 15 minutes a day for a year, where are they going to be at in a year? Typically? I mean, you could definitely read easier parts of the New Testament 
e- really? read it easily without a dictionary. Yeah, for sure. So like that's it, crazy. In, wow. in basically in our lessons, we we kind of organize it around like so. There's 52 lessons in Greek and Hebrew. We only have 45 right now for Greek. Um, but basically, once you get to around like lesson 20 ish, um, is when you start reading like simplified biblical texts. So wow. in the beginning, what you're reading is like created stories that are, you know, on your level. So it's very very simple. But if you practice the skill of reading, you will get better at reading, right? And this is what people just, I know it's, it seems very obvious, but people in second language acquisition, this field of, in linguistics have said, basically, if you want to practice reading in the way that, you know, like focusing on the meaning, you should know 95% of the words in the text. Mm. And so the problem is, is that most people never get there with the New Testament. So they're trying to read a text and they're stopping every other word right? To look, look it up and whatever. And so they, they, they're, they're not engaging with the text in a meaningful way because they don't know enough vocabulary. So what we do is we basically create these stories that are basically children's stories. And then we know, you know, all the words because we've taught you all the words that are in those stories. Mm. And so we basically just teach you those simple stories. Um, and then we eventually get to simplify biblical texts and real biblical texts. So by the time you get to the Bible, you're reading through it like like it's you know a, a, a real text that you're just reading to consume, um, and and that's because that's where you know we want people to get. So instead of just plopping you into the New Testament and saying here learn all these words, um, by the time you get there, you're you're reading quite well. I mean that that's pretty. This is pretty remarkable that if somebody 15 minutes a day is not very much that somebody could be actually reading through the New Testament and understanding it within a year, this time next year. That's because, I mean, I, I took several years of Greek in Bible college or college and seminary before I could really feel confident, like actually open up the text and not translate word, word sent to, you know, but like actually just sit back in my chair and kind of read and like, Oh, I'm getting, I'm understanding most of what's going on here. Like that's, that's wow. That's crazy, man. Um, all right, let's, let's, uh, transition a bit. So I, um, I've been blogging, I've been researching the Greek word kephale, <laughs> translated head. And on two occasions, it's it's particularly important because uh, Paul references on some level the husband being the kephale, the head of woman or his wife. Um, and so this word is extremely important. Um, when I've been blogging through kind of my my findings and and kind of what I'm what I'm uh, uh how I'm understanding the word. What I'm doing is I'm trying to look at every single time this Greek word is used in a non-literal sense. You know, it's obviously used everywhere to refer to a literal head, but there's all it's used me- metaphorically or in a simile or in a, in a more non-literal sense in, in a limited, you know, I don't forget the number 50, 60, 70 times or something in ancient literature. Um, so I'm trying to look at each passage to really get my kephale around. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was dad joke. Almost. Um, get my carefully around the meaning of this, how this word was used in a non-literal sense in the ancient world. And then um, early on in my blogging journey, which I'm still in of as, at the time of recording, you, you dropped this amazing lengthy comment on linguistics and how to even think through the linguistic side of determining what does a word mean. And it, I almost want to go back and reblog everything now because I was not using <laughs> linguistic categories very well. Anyway, that, that's all background. So educate us a bit on, from a linguistic standpoint, how would you approach 
this journey, understanding what the Greek word kephale means in um in these crucial passages. And, and sorry, I didn't I didn't even frame, I assume people know, but like, does the Greek word kephale refer to some kind of authority over? So husband is in authority over the head of the house, as we often say in English, you know, means he's in charge of everybody, right? Or is it referring to something else that doesn't convey some sense of authority? Like, you know, some people would translate it like the man is the source of the wife, you know, because like in Genesis 2, Eve was created from man and, and just like a, you know, a river has a source that we might refer to the headwaters of the river, you know, the source of the river, which doesn't convey authority. So this is a massive debate in the uh, larger debate about male-female relationships in, in the church and women in ministry and so on and so forth. Anyway, that's all background for people that may not know. So I'll, I'm going to throw it back to you. How, how, yeah, as a linguist, what are the categories we should be thinking through? What's the very language we should be thinking through? What's the difference between gloss, meaning, sense, and so forth, um, metaphor versus simile and, and literal and, and all these things? I'd love to hear your yeah, thoughts. Yeah, so I have, <laughs> yeah, just, you know, obviously that's a like, you know, how long do you have kind of question. I know. Um, <laughs> and, and really there are, I, I think what, what people need to realize is that, you know, there are classes taught on, you know, like very, very specific parts of this whole debate, you know, like mm-hmm. just, just what the genitive is. Like you could literally have an entire class on just the genitive and, and, and read the linguistics literature on it. Cause there's a, there's a lot of literature on it. Um, so when you say the head of the wife, right. You know, it's like, mm. there's a genitive there. What is that doing? Right. I mean, that, that, those are the kinds of questions that you would, you would first want to say like, okay, um, what is the syntactic context that we're looking at? And so when, when I say syntax, what in, in linguistics, what we really mean is like, how are, um, the meaningful units ordered? Okay. Um, and so like syntax in, you know, Greek and Hebrew studies is often kind of like this vague term where it's, it's kind of like everything. It's kind of like just grammar. Um, and you know, you have some, uh, semantics thrown in there and whatever else, but, but syntax really in linguistics is how do we order, um, the, the actual morpheme. So a morpheme is just a meaningful unit in language. So, you know, cat is, is one morpheme cats is two morphemes because it has a, the plural morpheme. So, so basically, um, we would look at syntax and how that's paired with semantics. So the semantic side is is the meaning. So how how what is actually being conveyed by this word? So what what you would want to do, and you know what I. So I, I'll give you an example. I I um you know I'm working on finishing up this article on chad. Um, it's the the Hebrew word for one. Okay, in the Shema. There's a debate about you know how do we understand Adonai Elohenu Adonai Echad. Right, what does that mean? Um, so, um, you know, it's usually translated, the Lord is one, okay? So I, there's about 900 something occurrences of Echad in uh, Hebrew Bible. So I just make a spreadsheet and I go through every single one of them. And I list, I say, okay, what is the meaning here? And what is the syntactic context of that meaning, right? So what I wanna see is, is there a way to link the syntax with the semantics? Because if I can do that, then I can begin to predict in a novel context what the meaning would be based on syntax, right? Because at the end of the day, most of these debates wouldn't have happened, right? Because most likely this was read in Ephesus. 
um, to native Greek speakers, and they would have just intuited the correct meaning, almost certainly, right? They wouldn't have been going through and and asking each each individual word like, "What did you mean by this?" Right? I mean, they might have, but but most likely, you know, they they probably just intuited the right meaning. But we don't have those intuitions anymore, right? This is the problem. But their intuitions. The, the, the question then is, how do we get get at their intuitions? Like, what what is it about human language that makes us interpret, you know? this particular word in one way in this context and another way in this other context, you know, it's wrap my head around something, right. is different than me tapping a head. Right. And why do we just intuit that? Right. So, so that's, that's what we're trying to get at in linguistics is to explain why do we have these two different interpretations and what leads to that. And then we can start to predict when we have one over the other. Does that make sense? Is it a matter? Yeah. Is it a matter of just looking at how this seems just like a traditional word study, but like, just looking at how this word is used in many different ancient contexts as much as you have to get a feel for how the ancient person might intuit the meaning of the word or is it more than more than that yeah it's it's not it's not less than that but it is more than that so what okay. we really really want is is um we we do want a description of the syntactic context so for example um i can tell you that uh like you know on on the blog that that uh I, I wrote um, Andrew Bartlett, I think, responded. And he, he, he gave this example of, um, you know, I was at a Spanish restaurant. I was eating at a Spanish restaurant and I danced a flamingo, right? And he said that we would interpret danced a flamingo as danced a flamenco, which I didn't know what that was, but I assumed that it was a, a Spanish dance after he said that. So the, um, and I'm probably saying it wrong now, but the 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 reason why you would do that is because dance is a particular verb which requires a certain kind of argument right it, it, and by argument i mean the thing that goes with it right the thing that completes the thought of the verb mm-hmm. um so usually like the direct object but not always um so so if i have a word dance dance a blank right what i expect is mm-hmm. a kind of dance to be there Right. Okay. And so when it, or when I said wrap my head around or wrap my blank around, right? I it's it's because of the word wrap that mm. that you are interpreting head in that way. Right. So we want to be very specific about like what in the context is leading us to disambiguate the word in this way. Sometimes it could be a particular lexical item, right? Like wrap, wrap my right? Um, or sometimes it's, you know, a, a particular feature like definiteness, the genitive, right? Again, the genitive in, in this passage is very, very significant because if you're ahead, you're always ahead of something, right? Mm-hmm. You, you, you head of a body, right? It, it's at least implicit. And so the fact that here we have the head of, you know, gunaikos, woman, right? Or wife, is this, tells uh, us this something is Ephesians, about the meaning. You're thinking if Ephesians five right now, Ephesians five twenty three yes. is what yes. they, okay. okay. But it's the same thing in first, first Corinthians eleven. Oh yeah, yeah. They're both genitives. That's right. Okay, yeah. Yep, yep. Um, and so, so we would want a theory of the genitive and how that interacts with these kinds of nouns, right? So kephale is a kind of like you can put it into a noun class. It would, you know, it would be called a relational noun. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it requires another thing that it's relating to. You're always ahead of something. Um, and so we would want to see like, okay, how do these nouns behave with the genitive? In general, what we would be trying to do is um, figuring out, like, when we ask those kinds of questions, right? 
I mean, I know it's kind of not fair, but we, we would really want a larger theory of, of meaning, right? Like I said, we want a theory of, of the genitive because if you don't have that, right? And, and if you don't have a theory of like disambiguation, which just means like, how do I determine a, the, the particular meaning of a, of a word with multiple meanings in this particular context, right? If you don't have a theory of that on that, um, you're kind of left with like, well, I think it's source. Well, I think it's leader. You know, it's like, it's like, okay, but why? You know, that's the, that's the issue. This episode is sponsored by Biblingo. Uh, Biblingo is an incredibly effective and efficient way to actually learn the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. Okay, so as many of you guys know, I'm a huge advocate for learning the biblical languages and not just for pastors or like theology professors, but for any Christian who is interested in diving deeper into the meaning of the scriptures, it is incredibly helpful to know Greek and Hebrew. I also understand, however, that you know, few people have the time and money to go to seminary or get a Bible college degree and, you know, take all the classes you need to take to, in, in order to learn biblical Greek and biblical Hebrew. This is why I'm so excited to introduce to you Biblingo. Biblingo uses modern methods of learning languages that make learning intuitive and fun. Some people like me are intimidated at the very idea of learning a language, especially an ancient language like Greek or Hebrew. But with Biblingo's research-backed approach, learning Biblical Greek and Hebrew is not only achievable, but it's actually, I'm serious, it's actually fun. Uh, Biblingo has helped people from all walks of life d- uh, dive deeper into the Bible through its ri- original languages. All you need is 15 minutes per day, 15 minutes per day. Um, consistency is the key ingredient to learning any language. And with just 15 minutes per day, you can be reading the Bible in Greek or Hebrew in just over a year. Uh, Biblingo breaks down the learning process into interactive activities that can be completed in just a few minutes a day. Um, this makes it really fun and actually uh, doable. You can actually do this consistently every single day. So if you want to dive deeper into your knowledge of the scriptures, just go to Bib lingo.org forward slash T-I-T-R. Okay, that's Biblingo. That's B-I-B-L-I-N-G-O dot org forward slash T-I-T-R. And you can sign up for a free 10-day trial run. Okay, so try it out for 10 days. See how you like it. And if you decide to sign up, you can uh, use the code T-I-T-R and you can get 30% off a subscription for a full year. Okay, so Biblingo.org forward slash T-I-T-R. Check it out for, you know, 10 days for free. Then Use the code TITR to get 30% off a full one-year subscription. I really hope you guys check this out. So I'm hearing you say, if I can summarize, because I know that and when people talk linguistics, there's there's words and categories that I know are so foreign to people. So I do want to try to unpack things for myself and yeah, for yeah. my audience. If there's like a, um, So I'm hearing you say that simply looking up like the lexical meaning of this word just as a word is just not, again, it's, it's, we need to do that. That's, that's a good thing to do, but we can't just draw a straight line between here's the lexicon, bam, here's what this word means. Like there's a lot of other things going on. Are there other words that are setting up this word? Um, how does this word uh, interact with when it's followed by a genitive? Uh, a, a genitive is, I mean, the most basic translation is of, you know, right. I mean, that's, that's genitive, genitive can do a lot more than that. But I mean, if just for people to think, but it, in English terms, it's like, you know, head of a woman, the woman that the word woman is in the genitive and, and the most basic kind of English way to render that is of, but even that 
of any, even in English is super broad and ambiguous and can mean many different things. Right. So that doesn't help us a ton. Yeah. Um, so, but it, but it does, if you, if you know what, what people say about the genitive in English, right. About this word of, mm -hmm. so in, in English, we have two genitives. We have the, um, the apostrophe S the wife's husband, right. Um, okay. that, oh, yeah. that's also a genitive. So, so, so basically the idea is that like in English, well, this is just, this would apply to all languages, right? All languages where you have a relational noun followed by the genitive, right? The, the analysis, you know, the like mainstream linguistic analysis is that the relational noun is determining the meaning of the genitive. I don't need to know the genitive, like the range of meaning of, of, right? I don't, that, that's irrelevant, right? Because all I need to know is if I say a sister, right? You're always a sister of someone. And so the of there is just giving you, it's just connecting the relational meaning already inherent in sister to another noun, right? And so really the question then becomes, what does the word sister mean? What kind of relationship is encoded there, right? Um, but, but my point is that if you, if you know that about genitives in general, what they do, then you can apply that in this case. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, not, not the race ahead to the conclusion, but already people are, yeah, yeah. I know so people, okay. So is it source or authority? Is it <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> uh, given everything you're saying, what's the answer? And I'm, I'm, not, I'm sure there's a lot more steps we need to think through before we arrive at the answer, but yeah. So if someone, yeah, if someone were to ask you that question, okay, so what is this source or authority? What, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah. So I, I mean, I, I would just say, um, you know, in the context of Ephesians five, so I, 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 you know, just leaving aside first Corinthians 11 for a second, um, yeah. and assuming that they're kind of doing something similar, you know, really it, like it doesn't, I actually don't think Kefale is all that important to the argument. Um, I, but, and the reason is, is because in verse 21, it says, you know, that people should be submitting to one another. Um, and, and then in 24, right. It says that the wife should submit to the husband as the, as, um, the church submits to Christ. So however you take Kefale, you still have to say that that holds, right. Um, and, but, but because those are bookending, um, our discussion of what Kefale means, right. Mm -hmm. What, what we're dealing with in this context is, is social hierarchies, right. And even, even the idea of a Christos is, is a king, right. And so it's, it's, he is the preeminent, you know, social, uh, authority, right. And so, so the issue is that there's nothing in the context that suggests that we're talking about the source of anything. Um, and there's all kinds of things in the context that, that suggest that we are talking about how people are related to one another, right? Like socially. And, and, mm -hmm. and so like, I just can't, you know, do with it what you will <laughs> kind of thing, yeah, but it's like, yeah. I can't get around the fact that this is what we're talking about in this particular context. I, would so you it, say that it, the la the language of submission points us away from seeing Kefalea simply meaning source with, without any sense of authority. Is that large? Right. Exactly. Is that largely because exactly. of the language of submission that surrounds it. Okay. Right. Exactly. So, so basically I would say that 521 is the like paradigm through which you should read both the, the role of the, the um, husband and the role of the wife, right? So the husband should submit to the wife in the sense that he should die for her, right? 
I mean, that's that's the that's 525 and on. Um, and uh, the wife should submit to the husband in the sense that she sub- as an authority, just as the the church submits to their king. Right. That would be the how I would read that text. Would you? So, yeah, speaking of 521 and now we're getting into more. I mean, can't separate linguistics from interpretation, but getting more into interpretation, exegesis and theology even. 521, you know, big debate about this language of submit to one another, this idea of mutual submission of 521. Does this mean that the rest of the husband-wife relationship is an example of mutual submission? Wife submitting to husband, which is explicitly stated, and also implied husband at times, whatever, submitting to his wife. Um, Or... So that would be in, I mean, almost every egalitarian, right, is going to draw attention to that, that that the wife submitting to the husband is just one example of mutual submission, but it's implied that the husband also submits to the wife. So there is no one directional submissive relationship. It is it is mutual. It is bi-directional. Or at least some complementarian, not every, some complementarians might even agree with that um, to some extent, but others would say no. Mutual submission is a general characteristic of the church as a whole. I mean, that's exactly what 521 says. But that doesn't necessarily exclude the fact that within a general paradigm of mutual submission, there are some relationships that are one-directional. Clearly, the parent-child, which comes right after this, is a one-directional. Just because there's mutual submission in 521 and just because the parent-child relationship in 6, 1 to 4, 1 to 5, 1 to 4, is is still under that mutual submission umbrella, it would go beyond Paul's point to say that parents should submit to their kids. And, and even I raised this to Andrew Bartlett in a in a um in a seminar and, and he affirmed that. He's like, you know, no, I mean these these are these each set of these three relationships, husband, wife, parent, child, master, slave, which comes on the heels of this household code. Um, not everyone is going to have the same degree of mutual submission. Husband and wife, yes. Parent, child, no. Uh, master, slave, I forgot what he's, you know, I think that could could go either way. You do you do have definitely the the master-slave relationship is being played with and, and tweaked. I mean, a, a master honoring their slave and treating them like a brother or sister in Christ would be unheard of in the ancient world. So, so clearly Paul's not just mimicking that kind of one-directional relationship that exists in the ancient world. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm being long-winded here. Uh, Kevin, I, so my question, yeah, um, going back, I just want to know from a linguistic standpoint, um, what are your thoughts on the relationship between 521 and the rest of the passage? Yeah, um, I'm I'm looking at it again. I don't know. I don't know if I would, I wouldn't um, just say it applies to the rest of the passage, um, including the kids and the masters and slaves. I, I think the big question is in what sense are you submitting? Right? Like that's, it's, uh, to me, to me, the question is like, like su- submitting in this word in Greek, right? is very broad. So like, uh, I, I, I think the problem is that we don't, we don't allow for it. We, we just think of in, in at least in the, this debate and you know, way more about it than I do, but it seems like people are drawing this dichotomy between, you know, submitting as authority, right. And, every other kind of submission. And and I would just say like, well, is, is the husband submitting to the, the wife when they are laying down their life, life for the wife? Mm. Yes. Is the father submitting to the, the children when he is not provoking them to anger? Mm. I mean, 
I mean, so what, what he's doing is in each of these cases, he's taking both roles actually and saying, hey, this is how you should behave to the other person, which is a, and, and this is the Christ-like way that you should be doing it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think I, I would tend to read 521 as the paradigm, right? How, how do you live out the, the, you know, humility of Christ to, in all these different social relationships, right? It's going to look different, but, but even the, the father, right? Must act in this same kind of humility to his kids. And the, the master of the slave must act in the same kind of humility to the slaves, right? But that looks different, right? It looks different for each of these social relationships, but I'm still having to submit in some sense. I mean, that's, that's where I would probably lean. Um, okay. At least I feel like, at least I feel like in 521 through, through the end of five, it's proximate enough to where it's like, okay, this is what you're still talking about. But I, I, you know, I think you can make a case for, for the, for the like uh, parent as well. I mean, Andrew Bartley actually mentioned this in the comment. He's like, well, you know, like, or I think it was Phil maybe, you know, oh, well, submission, this word submission can mean voluntary submission. Well, yeah, of course. Right. That's my whole point. Right. I mean, I, I, I can then say that it's, 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 um, it is voluntary submission, right? It is voluntary submission for the, yeah. the husband to submit to the wife in this way, just like it would be voluntary submission for the, the, um, you know, father to treat their kids with this kind of humility, right. Um, to not provoke mm-hmm. them to anger. So, but, but, but that doesn't mean that the kids are, are the authority, right? Mm-hmm. That that's a different kind of submission that we're now talking about. And that's where I think like the fact that you do have this kefale language, this is the only explanation for the, you know, the relationship between the man and the wife. It's like, well, the, the church is supposed to submit to the king as, as mm-hmm. their, the authority, right? I mean, that's the, so if that's, mm-hmm. if that's the paradigm we're dealing with, then I, I can't yeah. get around, you know, that for the wife as well. And I just want to point out that neither of us have a dog in this fight in the sense of you don't have strong opinions from what I've yeah. heard from you. And you're about probably going to get me in trouble you know, just by asking these questions. <laughs> but yeah, you're, you're, I think, as, as we've talked offline many times, I mean, your, your primary love is as a linguist to understand the biblical text as it is. And you're not coming at it with these kind of predisposed women must be pastors or must not be pastors, whatever. Um, I, I will have a dog in the fight in a couple of years when I figure out what I believe. <laughs> but, but right now, I, I'm, 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 primar- I'm, I'm genuinely working my hardest to say, I want to understand what this ancient text meant to the ancient authors and receivers. And, and I want to honor the original context uh, to, my, to the best of my ability and not read my own context into the text. Um, it is, it, again, we all do that imperfectly, but I'm, I'm, we're both working hard not to do that. Anyway, that, that's just in case people want, people always want to know, like, where's this person coming from? What's their angle? What, what they, you know, here's, here's my, I want to, here's where I'm currently at on this. I, I, I just, I haven't, there's two aspects of the egalitarian arguments that I haven't been impressed with. Number one, interpreting Kefalea's source in, in such a way that conveys no sense of authority. 
just on a link and i know i i people are screaming at me right now and i, I know certain names <laughs> who are really bad. i just I, and just so people a lot of egalit- a growing number of egalitarian scholars are kind of moving away from that just because i think the linguistic evidence is just it's just a hard as i've seen firsthand i think it's a really difficult case to make for some of the reasons you've stated just the context what does that contribute to the argument for paul to say that the husband was the source of the wife and people sometimes use Paul's unique reference to Jesus as savior to justify that. Or, or he could go, the best argument for source here is I think if you go back to Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, there is a use of kephale that, that, that um, I, I think rendering it on some level source might be legit there. So that's, that, that would be a, a, a broader con contextual reason for saying source but then you go back to chapter one you have a clear reference of um kephale as conveying some sense of authority christ is head over the church um or sorry head over the powers and authorities i forget the exact anyway so number one the, the most the most natural again if you just if you approach this text as an atheist or, or pretend like you're reading something out of the quran like how, how you know a religious text that you're not invested in you know rendering Kefli conveying some sense of authority in Ephesians 5.23, to me, it just makes the most linguistic sense. Um, that's right. That's right. Now I'm going to tur- turn the corner really quickly here and, and leave something on the shelf. I, I, uh, I actually think that everything I just said contributes to a more egalitarian understanding of the passage interpretively. Okay. I want to say that publicly. Hmm. I'm not going to justify that here, but just so people know, I, I'm not, I actually don't think that interpreting carefully conveying authority necessarily leads to a complementarian traditional complementarian reading of the passage. I, I might come back to that at a later day. Okay, so so carefully conveying some sense of authority. I still I'm, and I also I just I don't know I when some egalitarian scholars say five twenty one mutual submission, therefore the rest of the passage is mutual submission. I I just I. I'm not quite convinced of that argument yet. Here, here's what I would say, though. Can we say that Paul redefines the authority of the husband in such a way that without actually saying, husband, submit to your wives, it is almost like it is a relationship of functional. I don't, I don't want to say submission because that is a unique word, like fu- a functional mutuality that screams equality where the wife is specifically submitting to her husband. And then because the husband is the authority, look what Jesus, the ultimate authority did. He gave up his life for the wife. I don't need to describe that relationship as one of submission to say that it's one of mutuality and equality. That's why all the last 10 minute rant. That's that's the, the, my last sentence is what I would love for you to comment on. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 you know, completely agree with that. I mean, I, I, I guess my, my question back to you would be why not read 525 and following as, mm-hmm. as a form of submission, as long as you, so this is my thing. It's like, you just like, if we just view submission very narrowly as like, I, I get an order. I do that, <laughs> right? Like then, yeah, of course. That's not that's not what we're talking yeah. about. You know, I mean, I I just immediately think of Philippians two, and it's like, okay, you know, here here is Christ who has all authority, and he is mm-hmm. emptying himself for the sake of the church, you know, so that 
the church can be exalted. It's like, and that that is definitely a form of submission in the sense that like Jesus is laying down his, you know, his own authority, his own, you know, everything, everything that he had with the father, he's given up for the sake of his church. And so it just feels to me like I can just grant that, you know, like, I just like, if you want to read mutual submission to that, it's like, okay, you know, fine. Yeah. That if, if we want to call that submission, but, but the issue is that it, it's taking it too far then to, to, to say that that affects the, um, wife and husband role in such a way that, you know, the, the, the husband is now submitting to the wife in the same way because they all have distinct roles. Right. And, and so, it, so if we're talking about mutual submission, that's fine. But it's the question again, is just like, how, what, what is the description of the submission? Okay. Right. The, 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 the wife isn't laying down her life for the husband, right? That's not her role. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, so clearly mm-hmm. in each of the cases, even if we say there's mutual submission, w- we, we can't say that they're identical submissions. Right. And so that, that's where I would land. I mean, I, uh, I don't have a, does that make sense? It, it is. It's making sense. Um, I, so in my, though, and, and everything I'm saying, I'm, I'm like 70% where I'm at. <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm, 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 I'm kind genuine, of like off the cuff here. <laughs> yeah. I'm generally teasing out kind of, and I've spent, I, I've spent the last probably three months in Kefla and Ephesians 5. So I've really just spent a whole like few weeks just doing nonstop research on just ancient household codes. Like even bringing in just the genre that Paul's even working within is, is, is important too. And and there's so many things going on here. It's, the passage is so beautifully more complex than people, I think, make it out to be. And I enjoy, I love that journey and I, I embrace the complexity. Anyway, go, so in, correct me. If, so here's, is it a moot? Po- okay, so I'm gather my thoughts. My hesitation was just saying 521, mutual submission, therefore the whole thing is mutual submission is that when Paul does, when the New Testament writers do use the language of actual was it Hupatasso or whatever submission? Yeah, yeah. It is always one. He never says, "Husbands submit to your wives." Never says that Christ submits to the church. Are you saying that I that might be a little bit um, pedantic, or it might be what's the word I'm looking for here? <laughs> Are you saying that's not that important that the actual word is isn't used in a in a bi-directional sense? when the behavior is described in a way that could be categorized broadly as a conceptual submission. Is that, I'm so nervous talking about linguistic yeah. terms around you. Cause I feel like I'm not using <laughs> words correctly, but does that make sense? I'm I mean, am, am, I, am I, am I, am I getting, am I getting too hung up on the specific word submission, not being bi-directional uh, when, when clearly right. I'm hearing you say, if somebody is giving up of, not just of their money, time, resources, but their very life on behalf of somebody else. That that is in the purview of what we would describe as a submissive posture. Yeah. So that that's that's basically my my point. I mean, I but that being said, okay. So so you know, like like in if in Philippians two, right? Um, when when it says that, you know, um, but he emptied himself and you know take the taking on the form of a servant, of a slave, right? There is no, um, this is, you know, a description of what Jesus has done for his, the church. And there is no hupotasitai, you know, That's here true. describing Jesus, 
Now, does that mean that there's no submission? Like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, slaves. Mm. I mean, take on the form of a slave. I mean, it's like again, it's a, a servant is so weak, you know. But but slave, you know, to them it was it was a slave. So so I I guess my my point would be, I I I don't have a a super strong opinion on. I just read mutual submission. And I say okay, like I I can totally see that. I can understand how, mm-hmm. um, the husband should submit to, the husband dying for the wife can be called submission, right? And mm-hmm. so if I read 521 in in a in a broad sense, you know, so submitting to submitting to one another in the fear of of Christ, meaning everyone does it to everyone. And then it we and then the rest of the passage is working out how each individual person is doing that with all their different social relationships. I'm fine with that. You know, it's like what like I mm-hmm. I mean, of course, right? If yeah. if you want to limit the the submission to like five twenty one to twenty four where that word is found fine like I I think that's I think it's really beyond the point I mean I think this is to the to to your point about like this kind of being a weak argument who cares right <laughs> like like either way like who cares either way who cares what English word we right either way we have a description we have a description of what the the husband is supposed to do and what the wife is supposed to do right and, and if we want to call that submission that's fine um but in in the description of the wife right? It is to, it uses this word and it's submit to the husband as the church submits to mm-hmm. their, the Christ, the King, you know? So mm-hmm. it's, the question is how, how does that work out? And then for the husband, it's like, okay, you're supposed to love as, as the, the, as the King has, has loved, right? He took on the form mm-hmm. of a slave for his bride. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, I, 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 if you don't want to call that submission, that's fine. If you want to call it submission, that's fine. Like, but yeah. either way, it doesn't change the actual description, right? So that would be my my point is like whether you read five twenty one is so yeah no that's that's exactly kind of what I'm getting at. So that's helpful. Okay, so I'm not violating any major linguistic <laughs> rules or whatever by because it sounds like yeah. your your description to me it's like kind of like who cares? And also, I I haven't even mentioned this. I, I think most almost every single. Christian reader approaches this conversation and this passage with a secular view of submission. Meaning yes. it's bad, it's negative, it's lesser than. But Christianity turned that upside down. Upside yeah. down. That that if Jesus was a slave, he's called a slave. Christ right? modeled. Yeah. yeah. Like we should we should put the virtue of submission on par with courage, strength integrity, holiness, submission. Like it's, it's so we, 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 we read this passage from a, like a Roman point of view or an American point of view or a secular atheist point of view. And that submission is bad. Uh, submission is performed by weaker people towards people in a higher position or a better position. And if you're the one submitting, you're lesser than like all these things that make us read the passage, wives submit your husbands and kind of go, Ugh, like, that's just we're 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 bringing secular assumptions to this virtue that that Christ turned upside down. Am I correct? I mean, would you affirm that? And I do it when oh, I, I hear the word submit. I still have to like train myself to say no. Christ gutted this from the inside out and made submission a a source of strength and power and courage and and honor. You know, um, which didn't exist in the ancient world or or in today's world. Yeah, yeah, no, and I, and I think that's honestly. It, it it really shows how much in the church we have been influenced by that 
perspective. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's, it's, it's cause it, you can't, you can't say that without some sort of qualification. And it's like, mm-hmm. how, how have we gotten here where like Jesus, you know, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right. It's like, you know, this is, this should be the norm for everyone. You know, it's like submission. If our, if our King did it right, like we, we all have to do it. You know, it's just like, that's, that's the, the nature of the Christian life. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I completely agree. I just, it, it is, it is unfortunate even that we are in this kind of position where it's like, we're having this conversation and there's going to be some people that, you know, right. all of a sudden, like we're, we're getting hated on for, you know, like, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I think just following Jesus' lead mm-hmm. in this respect, you know, yeah. like he did turn the world order upside down. One of the best articles I've seen written on this and I read it a while ago and now I've read a lot of stuff since then and I've come back and read it and I still think it's the best take on the passage is uh, Michelle Lee Barnwall's um, Turning Kefale on Its Head. And, um, you know, she she wrote a really great book called Neither, Neither Complementarian Nor Egalitarian. So she has just kind of, you know, middle, middle of the road take on everything and she challenges both sides. And and I, I think her her take on Kefale in this passage in light of the household codes and everything is, is, is absolute stellar scholarship. Anyway, I go, I guess, let me tease out further kind of my suggestion that I think taking Kefale as conveying some sense of authority leads to what could be classified as a more egalitarian reading, because I do, I do think a case can be made um, that Paul is sensitive to a social environment that Christianity clearly honored and valued women and slaves um, uh, much higher than most social movements of the day. You have stuff in, in some of the, um, what they called the uh, other religious cults of the day, Mithras or not Mithras. Uh, Zoroastrianism? Anyway, there, uh, no, I wasn't going there, but there was some other, there's a word that people use, some of the mystery cults, the mystery religion. Oh, okay. Okay. Like there Christ- was some mystery. Yeah. Re- okay. re- yeah. In the first century that actually had this really high elevation of women. And, and they got, we know from, from many passages in the ancient world that, that these mystery religions and elevating women were disrupting the social fabric of the Roman world. And they got, they got hammered by some of the Roman elites. We know from other passages, especially in the pastoral epistles and, and Peter as well. First, uh, first Peter three, that when they talk about male, female relations, they did so with a kind of apologetic in view, meaning they were very cautious about giving the perception that they were disrupting the social fabric too much. One of the most, I mean, there's several statements in the pastorals, but I think it's a Titus 2.5 that says, wives, submit to your husbands so that, um, do you know this? So that the word of God won't be blasphemed. Um, let, me, let me just make sure I get this right. Yeah. Uh Submit. So this is referring to teaching young women submitting to their own husbands in order that the word of God might not be blasphemed. And then later on in verse nine, he says something similar. Um, and you get the very clear impression that th- there was this social reputation that people were, were a negative reputation that Christianity was having. And we know this from later texts, right? Where they thought that, you know, the Eucharist, that people were, that Christianity, Christians were cannibals because they were eating the flesh and blood of their savior. And, and these love rituals were interpreted as being, you know, orgies and the Christianity had this reputation that was going out. And, and, and Paul was, was concerned about that to some extent. So 
going back to my point, I think Paul is essentially saying, you husbands, you think your authority over your, your wives? Yeah, your authority. Over, yeah, you're the head. Yeah, you're the head of the household. Yep, you're the head. Head means authority. Are you the authority? Yep. Just like Christ was authority over the church. And guess what? Let me explain to you what Christian authority looks like. So he affirms their social authoritative position. And then as Barnwell, I believe, argues, turns it right on its head to say, because you're not, you're not an authority, you're a source. And that doesn't mean authority. it's because you're an authority. Therefore, grab a washcloth and wash your wife's feet, lay, lay down your life for your wife. Because in, in the Christian household, authority is turned upside down. Yeah. Yeah. That's what do you great. Think? I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know if you've read much um, in rabbinic literature as well about, uh, you know, what they say about women. It's none of it is. Oh, is yeah. Good. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, or Josephus you know, it's, and it's, Philo. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. But what's interesting about the rabbinic literature is that, you know, um, the rabbis, the predecessors of the rabbis are the Pharisees. And if, if Paul right. is an ex-Pharisee, mm. right? I mean, these, this is the world he's living in, you know, where, where you can divorce your wife for any reason, like any, yeah. like if she walks outside Cooking of her meal. house with yeah. her head uncovered, yeah, yeah, you can just divorce her, right? And so, so for Paul to be, you know, an ex-Pharisee and to, and, you know, obviously like there's all kinds of issues with rabbinic literature and how early is it and which passage and whatever. Um, but, but, but the, the point is that he, here we have really the exact opposite, right? Um, right. kind of statements about how husbands should treat their wives. Right. And, and that's, that's the, uh, again, going back to your point of, of it, it, it was turning the world upside down, but also Paul's world. Right. And when, when Paul gives this yes. command, I, I mean, I think, I think certainly all the Greco-Roman stuff is in the background, but also his Jewish background is, mm, you know, he's yeah. coming from a place where um, women were not valued like this, right? You, you wouldn't, right. I mean, you can't find that in rabbinic literature. It doesn't exist. And so, so for Paul to be saying this, he is saying like, this is a totally new world we're living in. You know, the, this, right. it's, it's all about loving, like our King showed us how to love. And, and that's a new thing. And, and now, even though, Everything in the in the culture, and if, even even his religious, you know, culture, which you know, the Jews were the kept the oracles of God. You know, they're like um, the people. You know, they're not they're not. He doesn't call them pagan sinners, right? Like like he calls the Gentiles. Um, but but he recognizes that that this is different now. You know, this is this is a a new way to relate to to the family um, that even within Judaism just wasn't wasn't seen yeah. before before Christ. Here's go, going. Yeah, that's absolutely. Yeah. And, and uh, I mean, Josephus and especially Philo, Philo stands kind of, <laughs> he's got one foot in the Greco-Roman and one foot in the Jewish world. And and when it comes to the household codes, as, as I've recently seen, um, this is where the Greco-Roman world, and, and there's diversity there. I don't want to just say it's all one thing, but in general, the Greco-Roman world and the Jewish world was in very much agreement when it came yeah. to the man being the head of the house and man, you know, um, so, so yeah, it's both a Greco-Roman and Jewish thing. And going back to my point though, I, I, um, I think if we translate Kephalea's source, not only is, I think that's linguistically less likely, but it actually makes Paul's rhetorical argument lose its teeth. Right. Um, it undermines, I think, this is how you be the authority. 
Yes. It undermines the revert, the rhetorical power of the reversal that's going on in that passage. And I do so going back and then going back to why I think Paul or the New Testament as a whole only uses submission one linguistically one directionally, meaning the word submission is only used wives submit to your husbands, not vice versa, is because in the household codes, again, as I've recently seen. This was a deep concern from Aristotle onward that the wife was submissive to her husband. Only it was like, husbands, make sure you subjugate. It was more in the active sense, subjugate your wives. Um, wives were rarely addressed firsthand. They didn't have that kind of agency, you know. And because Paul was, the Christian movement was already interrupting the social fabric and, and they were getting attacked for it. I think he's fine maintaining the language of husband is authority, wives submit, to keep that posture to where it didn't invite more critique than necessary. So he was able to maintain the veneer of the Greco-Roman expectation that man was an authority and all this stuff, you know, and he uses the language. Because if he came right out and said, wives submit to your husbands and, you know, husbands submit to your wives and man, you're the head of the wife and get a wife, you're the head of the man. And if he just interrupted that that much, that would have invited tons of, uh, I think, unnecessary critique rather than just Paul using the same language that Greco-Roman world is using, but gutting it from the inside out conceptually. That's my theory. I'm 71% sure of that right now. It does It does <laughs> actually, having bathed in these Greco-Roman household, household code, I'm like, oh, Paul's very aware of this genre. I mean, he is, mim- I mean, it's, 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 it's eerie how close he is to Aristotle and some uh, first century Greco-Roman writers and describing the household. He's very, very aware and, and mimicking the same genre. That, that to me, that's and that's not really that that debated. So, but that just puts that just says that okay, he's 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 being very intentional and specific with how he's interacting with these other household codes. Is my is my work in theory yeah, at least? <laughs> I could be totally wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's super interesting, and I and I do think too that one of the issues is that uh you know we often like the the wife's submission is is often in a greco in the greco-roman world it was often husbands subjugate your wives right yes and that's active. not yeah. what's being said right yep. and 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 i think that's but i think that's often how it's being read is the issue yes. in the christian world right yeah. um you know it's it's complementarianism is husbands subjugate your wives and that's n- that's no never said you know, and, right. and at the end of the day, like if we're talking to husbands, it's like, you only have one role. Like you're, 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 you're not told at all to subjugate your wife in any way. Like your only role right. is to love your wife and later, right. later on your life for it. So it, it's, it's, it, yeah, it's like important that you should know what, I guess, what your wife should be doing, but the way that you need to be acting regardless is 25 and on. <laughs> right. Um, right. and, and right. call it what you will, um, you know, like submission or not, Either way, I would say that at Philippians 2, it's being described as, you know, taking on the form of a servant, a slave, you know, yeah. um, and, and it's, it's, that's, that's the kind of language that is used of Christ everywhere, right? He's, he, he is walking in humility. Um, and yeah. so you have to do the same for, for your wife. Yeah, absolutely. That's, I, even in the modern way of framing it, people talk about, they use the word subjugation. And I just don't even like that. I, I, is, am I correct to say that? submit and subjugate aren't exactly the same thing like even if even if someone was a landed commentarian awesome i might land commentarian who knows um 
I would never use the language subjugation. Like that's just that doesn't reflect. I think that's an important distinction. Is that am I correct on that? Yeah, for sure. I I mean I yeah. I would agree with you. You know, but this is not, now we're yeah. talking about English. <laughs> so yeah, not my area yeah. of expertise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, hey, I got to run, man. This is so helpful and. Um, Thanks for helping me work out my thoughts in, 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 in real time. Uh, where can people find Biblingo and your work? Uh, we didn't get to Pistis Christu. I didn't. Yeah, that's, a, that's a Greek phrase. But um, yeah, where can people find your work and uh, where can people find Biblingo? Yeah, um, Biblingo, Biblingo.org. Um, in terms of the uh, stuff that I've done, um, I'd probably be best to go to my academia page. I'm usually pretty up to date on there. I'm I'm working on a lot of different projects, but most of them I think are are on there. But um, you can also just okay. check out you know Biblical Languages podcast. That's a, another our mm-hmm. podcast, and we talk about all things biblical languages. Um, and honestly, if you go to biblingo.org, every, a lot of stuff is there. You can pretty much find anything. Um, you can get a free 10-day trial. And cool. Thanks for coming on the Algerana, bro. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.